Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Conscious Vibe Podcast, where we elevate intellect through conscious dialogue while exploring race, politics, business, and culture. I'm Dr. Daryl L. Jones, and I'm Charles D. Mitchell. I feel like I haven't seen you in a while, Charles. How are you? DJ, I was thinking the exact same thing. I was driving over here, and I went, you know, D and I have not hung out. We had dinner together, what, three Sundays ago? I'm trying to even remember. Yeah. That was three Sundays that ago, long. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we yeah, don't yeah. usually go that long. No, we we'll don't. Make it's been it. crazy. We'll make up for it. We'll have to make sure we for sure. change that. Absolutely. I am so happy to have Rebecca Clyde in the house. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Good afternoon. Hi, Rebecca. Happy Juneteenth. That's Happy right. Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth. Yes. Mm-hmm. Feels like there's some momentum in that direction. I know, now, right? right? I'm hearing it may become a national holiday. I read that. Which is long well, overdue. Well, I did read that. Mm-hmm. Something about it. So, <clears throat> what a story you have. And I want to just start a little bit about where you're from. And then we'll get to what brought you here to the United States and a little bit about that indoctrination, we'll call it. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> but but where are you from originally? I was born in Costa Rica, so it's okay. a small country in Central America. Mostly people here have been there on a vacation mm-hmm. once in a you know, once or twice. But my mother's family is actually from El Salvador, El Salvador, as I would say. And um, so I grew up in Central America, visiting family, you know, in different countries. We moved around quite a bit. I lived in five, six different countries growing up and um, graduated from high school in a little tiny country that most people have never been to called Paraguay. Okay. (laughs) So then um, where's your dad from? My dad actually grew up in Arizona, surprisingly. So he was um, a Mesa High School graduate. And my uh, father's dad actually taught school here. He was a school teacher in Arizona. So how did your parents meet out of curiosity? So my father was serving a mission for the LDS church in Central America. And as many of them do, they meet uh, beautiful women. (laughs) (laughs) Or go to meet beautiful women. According to them, everything was above board. Nothing happened, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. So that explains the BYU. Yes. I was going to uh, ask you, what is uh, Buenos Aires? What does that tie into? Nice. Yes. So we lived there. My family lived there from 87 to 92. So I was there for um, some really important events that actually took place, world events that took place in Argentina during that time. But I, you know, so I was in school um, for five years there in Buenos Aires. It's a great city. It was a really... um, amazing place to be because it's a cultural center of Latin America in many ways. And um, it's kind of at the crossroads of a lot of European culture mixed with Latin American culture. And so it was a, a really great place to grow up, to kind of get exposed to the world, to become come of age, because that's where I became a teenager and, you know, experienced a lot of firsts in my life was there in Buenos Aires. So I have a lot of like love for that yeah. country, for Argentina. Okay. So you, your high school experience, Central America, then a major shift with your college experience. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of the cultural transformation that you had to experience? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, well, the funny, the first thing to know is I was 17 years old and my family had just moved from Argentina to Paraguay. Mm-hmm. And just to give you an idea of what it's like to go from Buenos Aires to Asuncion, it would be like moving from New York and living, say, in Manhattan to moving to uh, Topeka, Kansas or something like that, right? You're going from a very cosmopolitan, culturally rich, vibrant city of, you know, 20 million people to a very tiny, more um, remote, very, very um, almost, I would say, culturally underdeveloped city. So that's where I completed my senior year in high school. And the, the high school there really didn't have much going on for me. I had pretty much already completed all the requirements. And so my dad basically showed up one day and said, it doesn't even make sense for you to be here. You just need to go to college. And I've already gotten you in to BYU. I was like, what do you mean you've already gotten me in? He's like, yeah, basically, I sent them your transcript. They accepted you. And you just need to wow. go. And so I only had a matter of weeks to pack my bags. I was I hadn't even I just started my senior year in high school. 
and I was being essentially shipped off to college. And so um, I think there was another underlying thing. I had a boyfriend and I think my parents were concerned that, you know, I was you know, maybe they didn't want anything to happen. So they were like, let's get her out of here and go to college. Okay. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> that but, works. Uh, I like it. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I ended up. So it was summertime down there. So uh, Paraguay is on the Tropic of Capricorn. So it's in a tropical, subtropical climate. Um, I didn't even own a coat or a pair of boots. It was January and I showed up in Salt Lake City, Utah in the dead of winter and realized immediately I was very ill-equipped, first of all, <laughs> for a winter in Utah. So the first thing was I had to go figure out where to buy winter clothes or even what I needed. I didn't, I had never lived in winter, so I didn't even know what that was like. So that was my first adjustment was snow, cold weather, all of that. Yeah. And then coming into a um, community that was completely different from where I had lived. I mean, Latin America is so different mm -hmm. um, in so many ways, you know, we're very, um, warm, we hug, we kiss, yeah. we stand close to each other, we talk loud, we use our hands. And there, that none of that is allowed. And I very quickly realized I was culturally out of place almost immediately. Um, there's a funny story. One of my roommates, she and I, we became best friends immediately. We were very, very good friends. Her name was Katie. And one day she pulled me aside and she said, um, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but I'm not interested. And I was like, what do you mean? You're not interested in what? What are you not interested in? She's like, well, you know, I figured you were like making advances at me. And I was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And she's like, well, because you're always kissing me and you're always, you know, holding my hand and you're always touching wow. me. And I realized that my, my proximity to her in her culture, that was considered an advance. In my culture, that's just normal. That's how you are with friends. So but that you was guys an were sleeping in separate rooms. Yeah, well, right? okay. you know, we were sharing a room because okay. it was a college dorm. But right. you know, we had separate beds. I, you know, so anyway, it's just kind of a funny wow. <laughs> when well, you talk is. about. <laughs> have you been to Provo, man? I've not been to Provo. I have been to Salt Lake City. And Those are like two different worlds, too. I mean, very much so. Salt Lake City is, is what it is, too. Right. But man, Provo is. Yes, so. yes. It's a very, you know, I was in a, it was a very religious community. It was very conservative. Very. Um, you know. Were you brought up in. The LDS church, I mean, up with your father being LDS, was that a part of Yeah, so I was, I was very acquainted with the religious practices, but the the religion and the culture are two different things. And when you're in a Latin American country, it shows up totally differently right. than it would in the United States, especially in, in a place like Utah. So there were so many cultural components that I had never been exposed to or even understood uh, that I was suddenly thrown into. Uh, so that was, uh, you know, one of the explanations. But it was just funny. I mean, things would happen all the time. Like, I noticed that um, the girls in the dorms were very caught up on, like, let's cook for the guy. You know, it was all about, like, let's get a husband and what could we do to get guys to come over so that they can see that we're mari marriageable material. You know, it was very funny that way. And mm -hmm. I just wasn't raised that way. I wasn't raised to think that that was my goal necessarily. And so it just always struck me as kind of odd. Like, aren't we here to go to, to get our degrees? Why are we so worried about making brownies for the guys across the way? <laughs> like, <laughs> Was that part of the cultural experience for you in college? <laughs> no. No, seriously. Having brownies made for me? Right. <laughs> No. Yeah, no. Charles, it was not a message for you. No, that not at all. No? no, the girls were not <laughs> trying not, to. Not at all. So, but that's they definitely were not really trying to make brownies. No, where, not where at did all. You, where, where did brownies. you? Well, you went to Case Western for your PhD, but where'd you go? I went to Case for my doctorate. I went mm -hmm. to DePaul for grad, but undergrad at Michigan State. Michigan State, that's right. Mm -hmm. No brownies for you? No. No, nobody no, was no, cooking. I, I went to historically by college. I went to North Carolina A&T uh, State University and then... Uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill for graduate business school. Wall oh, my brother University went there, University too. Mm -hmm. They have the best international business program. They have a very good international mm -hmm. business program. So how did they reel you in then in college? What was the tool? No, I mean, I, well, 
I think part of my thinking in that conversation <laughs> was, was that no one was, was trying to reel you in. <laughs> so, You're like, yeah, so, so maybe that's a selling point for people who, so, who would like to you know, I, I don't, I don't get think, real did. The, the women in college where, where I attended, were that wasn't the focus, right? They were really focused on trying to, quite frankly, get an education, to your point, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, build a career, right? Uh, yes. Uh, Unless I missed something, unless it just went way over my head, but I I don't recall that being, you know, the sort of back and forth dichotomy that was going on. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So I have to ask: Do you think your dad was well aware of the culture at BYU and that was part of his thinking? Well, I think they knew that the honor code and the the strictness of that environment was what they wanted me to be. Got it. Kind of. In so that, you know, I was young. I wasn't even 18 years old yet. I didn't even have a driver's license when I went to college. And so I think they felt like, okay, she's going to be 5,000 miles away from home, 17 years old. Let's put her in the most convent-like university we can find. Got it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> you know, and so that was uh, probably some of the thinking. Yeah, you. when we talked about it, you feel it on the campus. I was there for a... Uh, was a statistics boot camp in my doctoral program. And you you feel it on the campus. The minute you hit campus, you feel, okay, this is different. And just the way you ambulate, the way you navigate, it's um once you realize you're not in a wax museum, you you're just like, okay, these are people, you know what I mean? It's like and it's not, I'm not trying to stereotype that at all, but that's the feeling. And <laughs> You are <laughs> one of whatever you are if you have some tone to your skin. Mm-hmm. So I was on, on there with three dudes from Africa. So we definitely that had to be right. <laughs> that had to be in this program. Really different. Mm-hmm. So did you eventually find a more accommodating home for all of your affections? Um glad you laughed at that. <laughs> For all of my acceptance of my uh, hand gestures and kissing and all of that. Well, I definitely adjusted. I I did adjust myself. I noticed myself trying to, like, ask or not just – because down there, when you walk into a room in Latin America, you just automatically go and kiss everyone. Like, you don't even – it's just – you just do it. You don't even think about it because if you don't, that's actually very rude. And so I had to reprogram myself slowly to stop doing that because I could tell that it wasn't always comfortable for people. Man, so a- yeah, it it took a little it took a good while and even now I still I I still find the way Americans greet each other here so cold and so hard to it's still not comfortable for me. I I yeah, I've gotten is, used to it, but it's not comfortable for I me. I think you're right cuz I think there is something really beautiful about uh that type of culture where people are super affectionate mm-hmm. and expressing and showing love for mm-hmm. one another uh, and caring. And, and, you know, obviously the, the way we do that a lot of times is through affection. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's something that we miss out on, quite frankly. Yeah. And I have to tell you, um, in Argentina and in South America, the men kiss each other, too. When they greet, they kiss each other twice on the cheek. And it's very normal to see men hugging each other, you know, embracing each other, kissing each other, fathers and sons kiss each other. It's very normal. Everybody does it. And that's the one thing. I think women can get away with that a little bit more here. I think you're more likely to see women hugging each other, but you hardly ever see men doing that. And I think that men are missing out on something. They're missing out on kind of a really important (laughs) bond. And I, I just have to tell you, I, I I think it's beautiful. I don't have a problem with it. Uh, Look, because I'll I hug would... him all day long. I love hugging, <laughs> I love hugging well, my brothers and my friends. Yeah. Um, I don't know about a couple of pecs, you know. I mean, I've seen it. You know, I, I, I've, I've got European friends, and they do do that. And, you know, it's something to get used to. But um, And I don't take offense to it, you know, because I understand <laughs> it's part of the culture. But, um, you know, I, I we'd, we'd have to work through that. I think... <laughs> I think the male, you know, I feel like uh, men are missing out on a very important emotional component in their life by not having that. So, I hear you. And I think in aspects of, of African-American culture, that that embrace when you see your grandfather and haven't seen that happens. Oh, yeah. it, the kissing part, 
No, I mean that that's probably <laughs> not his, and <laughs> I'm cool. It's not, not gonna yet. happen. But I, I kiss my son. I do. I kiss yeah. my son. I, I mean, I kiss yeah. him on my. It's more of you know, I kiss him on his forehead or. I mean, probably only at home, so, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, in, in public, public too. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good. I I yeah. think more. I would love to see more fathers kissing their sons in yeah. public, and for boys to be comfortable with that. I think it's a really important um, connection. Yeah. And, and you saying that. Obviously, um, coming from the culture you did is really interesting because I do think, to your point, I think when you show that affection, even, you know, male, female as friends, it makes it tougher to be an ass to that person. Right. (laughs) I mean, seriously. Right. It's like, how can I dance back and forth between? Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I think that's really interesting. Well, and if you think about physical contact, especially, you know, you know, I've heard you in your previous podcast talking a lot about biracial interactions Mm -hmm. and things like that. I mean, I think that's a big missing thing in the United States is that people of color and people, you know, all these different, you know, racial Mm -hmm. ethnic communities, they don't have physical contact with each other because it's not part of the culture. And I think the fact that we don't touch each other uh, in our interactions actually creates a missed opportunity. And, you know, in the other countries that also had a lot of slavery, I mean, Latin America had a huge slavery uh, component to their mm-hmm. history. The big difference and the reason why you don't see um, all of this, the same level of tension in race in other countries like Mexico, for example, that had a huge um, colonial slave trade at one point is because they intermarried right away. Got it. The minute, um, you know, they everybody just blended in together. The mm-hmm. in, um, interracial marriage was happening very early on in the 1600s and the 1700s. It was perfectly acceptable. And, you know, at the beginning there wasn't. It was a little bit. But soon everybody had done it. And so it just became widely accepted. And so that, I think, also has translated into a very different experience in the United States than I believe in other countries where it's just everybody's just like a blend. Like I got my 23andMe report back and I was interested to see, you know, because of my mom's side of the family in the Caribbean, there's so much everything, right? And sure enough, I have like six different African countries in my DNA and I have – all these um, European countries in my DNA. I have Eastern, uh, your Eastern East Asian countries in my hmm. DNA. Like the only, I think the only continent that was unrepresented in my DNA was Australia. Hmm. Wow, I, I, it's funny. I was just looking at my Twenty Three and Me over the weekend. Have you done that? Have you done Twenty Three? No, and I, I have <clears throat> reasons why I haven't done that. <laughs> yeah, privacy. But what? There, there's yeah, some, exa- exactly. <laughs> there's some concerns. Yes. Yeah. No, I thought it was super interesting. Um, I've done it a couple of years ago, and it came up over a conversation over dinner um, when I was in Chicago uh, on Sunday. And uh, yeah, it is a little surprising when you look at that and see, wow, seventy-five percent sub-Saharan Africa, and like all these different countries, and you know the percentage of European, mm-hmm. uh, and then actually there's some Asian as well. Um, so it, it, it's very uh, interesting when you look at how your genetic makeup. You know, determines a lot about who you are, and, and mm-hmm. you know the cultural piece is obviously a part of the upbringing, but having the DNA piece explaining a lot about where you come from is is important and interesting too. Mm-hmm. And it was so deep because when we had Liz, another um, female entrepreneur uh, born in Africa, on the show, she talked about the pride it gave her mm-hmm. not having to go through that process. She knew exactly where she was from, being born there, et cetera, right? And that's really deep, to not have to do any math at all. <laughs> and I know where my people are from yeah. because I, that's mm-hmm. where I'm from. It's, it's deep. Yeah. But that's wonderful. I mean, there's so many things that, to talk to you about because this this <laughs> yeah, whole kind of cultural. <laughs> well, but it's beautiful. I mean, you're. That's the beauty of this conversation, right? And, and someone with a background who's so multidimensional and, and self-aware. I think that's awesome. So. You know, we'll try to get to as much as we can. So your college experience, you studied business. Mm-hmm. And now you're an entrepreneur, founder of a tech firm, Botco AI, yes. right? Okay. Yes, that's correct. And part of that is seeking investment, right? <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that process. <clears throat> wow, I think I, I still have PTSD from that process. But let's <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I don't know if you know this, but um, women only get about 2% of venture capital funding to begin with. And of that 2%, only about half percent are going to women of color. And for, for Latin women, Latinx women in particular, it's like 0.34% mm. of venture funding is going to women like me. Okay, so less there's less than a half of a percent chance, basically, that I can raise money. That's mm-hmm. essentially what it means. Um, and the um, process was really, really uh, interesting. So um, I love a challenge. So if the best way to get me to do something is to tell me that I can't do it. So that statistic, like basically tells me like there's no chance you're even going to raise money from these people was a huge motivator for yeah. me. <laughs> so, you know, I, I tend to do very well with uh, that kind of a unsurmountable uh, challenge or opportunity. Mm-hmm. When I started the process of raising money, you know, at first I thought, well, this will be easy because my co-founder, he, he, right, went to MIT, he went to Carnegie Mellon, you know, he has all these advanced degrees, mm-hmm. of course, they're going to believe in our team because look, you know, I have some good credentials. I have a lot of professional experience, industry experience. And then look at him. He has these amazing technical credentials. And then my other co-founder, Anu Shukla, she has, you know, done all these other companies and had very successful exits. So I kind of naively went into it thinking like, this will be easy, right? I'll, I know how to present. I'll be able to raise money. No problem. I had no idea, honestly. And um, when I started, I was just, you know, people would be nice and they would listen, but I wasn't getting, you know, the traction that I wanted. I wasn't getting the response that I wanted. And, um, you know, a lot of it had to do with, hey, you know, maybe we hadn't, um, we didn't have as much momentum in the sales side that they would like to see, or we didn't have enough differentiation for the product, or I wasn't articulating it right. You know, there were all these things, but I was still watching other founders like me, but that were guys, white males, with the same problems I had, or even worse, more inferior products getting funding. So I'm like, wait a minute. Like, if it really is about these things, this checklist, then why are they getting funding and I'm not? Like, something's fishy here, right? (laughs) And it's because when I show up in the room, they they don't know of a billion dollar founder, you know, you know, a founder with a billion dollar company that looks like me. They've never mm-hmm. seen one. So they can't mentally in their mind see that I would be that person. Yeah. Right. They just don't have any point of reference. And so that's why it's so much easier for a Chad to come in the room <laughs> and create that illusion, right? Because they've seen the Chad do this before but they've never seen somebody that looks like me do it. So mentally their brain cannot compute and mm-hmm. can't wrap its head around. Even if I show all of the metrics, if I show all of the results, it's it's still for some reason overrides that formula or that, that picture they have in their brain of what a founder, a successful founder looks like. And so, you know, all of my advisors, I had a, a really amazing, um, support system through this whole process with tons of advisors and mentors. Like I can't, I can't tell you how many amazing people have helped me. Um, Founders here in Silicon Valley all over uh, who were championing me and cheering me on. And they just said, you're just going to have to do more meetings than the other people. Like if it takes normally 30 investor meetings to get a deal, you're, you're probably going to have to do 50. Hmm. I was like, okay, I can do that. Um, It was really like 300. Wow. <laughs> you know, the the level it. of of the, the number of no's that I had to overcome to get to the yeses was hundreds times more, not just 10 times more. So, uh, you know, I just had to get really good at um, just accepting the no's and just finding the next person, the next person, the next person who could see through the physical difference and just look truly at the business and not get caught up on that pattern recognition that can be so detrimental. But doesn't that also like it, it sort of like, it's like you, um, you, you iterate along the way, right? And you, yeah. You and get better. You get better. <laughs> and you're also, you're sharpening like that tool and you're getting, you're getting more and more experience. You understand what the room 
looks and feels like and what the expectations are on the other end. And so it, it is a numbers game. It mm-hmm. is a it is also how long are you able to sort of just sustain what it takes right, yes. to get to that that end point where okay, now we're in front of people, we've got our pitch down, we really have succinctly got us where we're in a place where we understand exactly what our value proposition is, what we bring to the table, mm-hmm. we know what our ask is, and we know how to deliver. Are we in front of the right audience? And at some point, someone will say yes. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. You definitely get better along the way. And I got better in the pitch and the delivery, all of that. But it was more about that. I also got better at playing the game because what it turns out that I was – I had totally missed at the beginning and I just didn't know it is that fundraising is all about creating FOMO and about creating a sense of scarcity. And so at the beginning, when I started fundraising, I was kind of using my sales background, which in sales, you, it's very helpful to be available, to be helpful, to be, you almost want to make that person your friend because you want to build a relationship in fundraising with investors. It's actually the opposite Um, it's not about becoming their friend or building a relationship. I mean, a little bit, but it's more about making them feel like they can't get into your deal, that your deal is going to be good and that they will not be able to get in. And that's how you get them in. So it's like a very, it's more about the takeaway and it's more about playing these cat and mouse games, (laughs) which are kind of silly that I, that you have to do that. But once I learned how to do that and I became more astute, how to employ strategies to create that sense of urgency and create that sense of scarcity, then I noticed things got better. Uh, but it was a it was a game I didn't know how to play at the beginning. And I'm still not great at it. I'm just getting a little bit better at I it. I think there's a lot of components. To your point, you're absolutely right. There's too, so many components to that, which is, you know, oftentimes it's understanding who the audience is that you're in front of. What deals have they invested in? What are their propensity for, like, wanting to really be involved in a deal and at what level? How can you really play on that? And to your point about making it like, well, here's who we're talking to. Like, we just spoke with XYZ. And I know Mm -hmm. this is the the lens that they have on this particular business model and platform and what they would like to do. And so you start talking about what one of their competitors wants to do. That wait, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. You're talking to who and when and what's their interest? And so, I mean, all of those things play into it. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah. The best way to get somebody to invest in a deal is to tell them they can't invest in a deal. Yeah. Wow. So, so, so where um, are you now with uh, Botco AI? At what point are you in seeking investment and development of the company? Yeah, so we raised um, a little bit over $3 million in our seed round. Mm-hmm. So the good thing is we're freshly capitalized. We're in a good place. And now I'm just moving completely away from fundraising and back to the thing that I love, which is customers and sales mm-hmm. and helping uh, grow the business. And so right now we're in a hiring mode. So we have a lot of job openings, which is great. And I'm spending my day doing the thing I love most, which is talking to customers. And so right now what we're focused on is um, healthcare is the industry that we're selling our intelligent chat solution into. And, you know, one of the reasons why healthcare is so great right now is because, you know, it's such a difficult product to consume if you think about how hard it is to even get a health appointment scheduled. Mm-hmm. Like how many of us have had to play phone tag back and forth just to get a basic appointment scheduled, um, figure out what your insurance is going to cover or not cover for a procedure or a treatment. That whole process is very cumbersome. And RAI really tries to smooth that out. So yeah. at any time, if a patient is trying to inquire of a provider do you have appointments available? Do you take this insurance? How much will this treatment cost me? You know, all of those things. Where do I park when I show up? You know, that can all be handled through an AI like ours. And so we give this intelligence to providers so that they can be more accessible, provide instant answers to the families that they serve without having to play phone tag and use, you know, 150-year-old technology um, like the telephone to be doing these things uh, when an AI piece of software like ours can, can handle that for them. And so that's where we have really specialized in what I love seeing are you know, our customers, especially like in um, behavioral health and drug and alcohol rehab. If you think about that type of healthcare need, it's, it's, it's needed now. Like it doesn't help you if they call you back in four weeks, Right. <laughs> you need it today. You need to find out if you can get in right away 
And um, the fact that we can bridge that gap and make it easier for that interaction to happen is what really I wake up for every single day. So that we, you know, there are these industries where technology just kind of outpaces consumer interest, right? On a scale of one to ten, how fast is technology moving and advancing in, in your world? Hmm. On a scale of one to ten, how fast is it advancing? Um, you know, to me, it always feels like it. Could, there's all this technology out there, right? That we're constantly experimenting right. with, but. The application of it to a business is where the complexity is, right? right? Yeah. So you'll see universities and, you know, um, these research labs coming out with technology. But the technology by itself, if, it ha- if it hasn't been applied to a business problem, it just kind of sits there, right? Yeah. It doesn't have utility until somebody can take it and say, okay, this is how I'm going to use it to solve a problem. And I think that's kind of what had happened with like neural nets, for example, and, um, there had been this ability, but nobody was like using it properly or it was too clunky or cumbersome to use it in a real world scenario. So I think finally what's happening is that uh, distance is shortening and we're, we're finally okay. able to take some of those uh, research developments out of labs and say, and, and apply them to a commercial use case and actually solve a real problem. That's, that's beneficial to two parties where you know, the healthcare provider says, hey, this is going to save us, you know, thousands of dollars, if not tens of thousands of dollars a month. And not only that, but we're going to have better health outcomes because a person, if they if they need to be seen and we can get them in sooner rather than later, that's better for everybody. Mm-hmm. The family is healthier. The individual gets back to recovery more quickly. And we're not creating an opening for more bad things to happen just because we had to wait four weeks for the appointment to get scheduled. Got it. So how long did it take you to get to that point to your to your MVP, if you will? How long did it take you to get to that? What was <laughs> yeah. that process like? We had multiple MVPs, but you know, at the very beginning of the company, we were just everything was just on a whiteboard, right? We had lots of block diagrams, and then we would take this to uh, customers, that you know, potential customers, people that we could imagine using our product, and we would just show them prototypes of it and say, okay, what do you think? Would you use this? What would you want? We did about 100 of those interviews. And just that process took us like six months of just before we even wrote a line of code. Then once we had kind of an idea of what the product needed to be, um, our first customer was actually a company that wanted to pay us, prepay us to be our first customer. So they said, hey, we'll we'll buy a one-year contract before so that we can be the first to use this because mm-hmm. we really need it. We have millions of uh, users that we need to be engaging with and you know, the current technology is is old and broken. It's not working. We need to try something new. So that was our first, like, true MVP was applying that technology and that idea to this, this customer. But it was not a consumable product in the sense, like, I couldn't commercialize that. It was, like, pieces of technology that were duct taped together right, right, to help this right. one situation. But we learned so much from that experience. And that is what really set us up so that we could you know, take the data from this one real world, you know, trial, so to speak, and then build a, the true like commercialized product Got around it. it that we could now take and sell to hundreds of other companies. So now you're in a place where you're okay. Now we can, we can operate, we can start to hire, we can start to really mm-hmm. market and push our product in, into the marketplace. Um, as you look into the horizon, how far off do you think you are from like a Series A and what that raise will look like and what that expansion will do for you in terms of growth? Do you see this as like mm-hmm. an opportunity to really scale in a really big ways? Because you know, obviously, I mean, you're talking to venture capital; they they really want to. They, they they're look, everybody's looking for the unicorn, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what what are your what do you think your long term aspirations for for the business model? I know artificial intelligence is there is to me. I feel like it's almost in its infancy in terms of what what it will be able to do. And then if you look at, um, there's, uh, I don't know if you've ever read um, uh, Peter Diamandis, who um, is author of Abundance. Uh, he's got a book called The Future The Future is Faster Than You Think. And he talks about the convergence of technologies like AI and, AI and robotics and the, uh, all these different tools mm-hmm. that are in the marketplace okay. when you bring them together that accelerates technology and disruption and innovation. And so, where do you see your company in the next three to five years on that iteration? Obviously, capital is a piece yeah. of that, but obviously, you're going to take the product that you have now 
I imagine that there's probably a pathway that allow you to go to, you know, all different types of scale and markets in terms of opportunity. Absolutely. So you had asked me a lot of questions there, so I'll try I to know, answer a, a few. So, okay. I, I do that a lot. So uh, you asked me about when we're raising again. So my, my goal is to raise, do our Series A uh, in 2022. Um, so we have, you know, I want to have a, a good year under our belt where I don't have to fundraise. I can just focus on growing the business because the key thing there is to show a consistent month over month growth in our uh, sales and in our momentum, right? Because that's, if I can do that, then raising money is going to be super easy because the, the, you know, literally you just put a chart in front of them and then boom, you're, you're, you're funded. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I need to be focused on right now. Like I can't think of anything else other than that. Uh, and then at, in terms of the three to five year plan though, of where, where do I see the company going? You know, my, my goal is, and I know this is going to sound very lofty, but is really to become the new Salesforce. Uh, if you think about it, Salesforce was created 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. It was a product that was really built in a different time. Uh, on-demand did not exist. Um, AI did not exist, really, in any kind of useful fashion. And it was built originally as a way to kind of support customer engagements and to make it easy for businesses to connect with customers. But it's really built on a model, an outdated model of 20 years that's now 20 years old. And the world is ready for something new. And, And the vision that we have is, hey, Businesses should be available to their customers, to their consumers, to their uh, families that they serve whenever the consumer wants it, not when the business is available. And that's the the script I'm trying to flip. Mm -hmm. It drives me crazy that I am in meetings all day at work. And by the time I get off my meetings at 4, 430 and I call to make a doctor's appointment, the doctor's office is closed Mm -hmm. and they're no longer answering their phones. Well, guess what? That's when I'm available to make the appointment. Why are you turning off your phones at that time? (laughs) And so I'm saying, no, you should be available when your families and your consumers are available, not when it's convenient to you. And it should be all about, you know, reversing that experience and making it so that as businesses, we're accessible. We're there to actually serve the the people that are in our constituency, versus making them, you know, subserve to us and to our you know schedules because somebody arbitrarily decided to turn off the phones at four o'clock. Yeah, no, that resonates big time because it happens all the time. I mean, literally, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're right. It's at the end of the day when you feel like there's okay now. You, oh, wait a minute, I've got five minutes to try to get this appointment, right? It's, it's it, incredible. It's yeah. incredible. That's, that's, I think, a part of everyone's, uh, you know, current life. What about things like, and again, I know you sound, you're focused, but I know that there's so many more things that you can, when you start thinking about technology and all these additive parts that can really be innovative and disruptive, you, know, you think about things like blockchain. Like, how, Do you think in terms of like how you can marry the two and create, you know, bigger <laughs> possibilities. Yes, yes. And, and, you know, I know developers love to, like, you know, have those kind of projects, in, you know, in their back pocket. Mm-hmm. Do you think about plans or do you sit around and you, you guys strategize about what could be additive pieces to your business model that could really, you know, help? scale and build in those ways as well or and again i know you said yes. you're focused but i mean i know there's other things that have to be out there that <laughs> right. you, i know you see them and it's these nice shiny things that are sometimes hard to like not you know take a look at and figure out how you can uh you know add it to your model i mean there's so many so much there to unpack but for example you know when you think about blockchain one of the great things about blockchain is that um it can create a um a better way for almost like think about uh, crowdsourcing models or think about um, getting multiple people to work on a problem and still get compensated for it uh, without necessarily having to do a lot of administrative work. Mm -hmm. So in in our field, uh, in conversational AI, there's this whole concept um, about ontology. So an ontology is think about it, I like to think about it as a language library for a specific topic Mm -hmm. or domain. So if I'm in... um, Healthcare, there's, you know, maybe specific healthcare ontologies that um, we need to have the computers understand so that when people are asking about procedures or treatments or body parts or ailments, 
our systems understand what they're referring to. You know, doctors tend to use scientific language. Humans tend to, you know, humans, like not that doctors aren't humans, but like lay people <laughs> tend to just use like more generic terms. And how do we know what people are referring to when they're using either either word? Um, so a good ontology will allow a system to understand those two things. What is the medical terminology? And then what is the lay terminology for that same uh, ailment or concern? Mm-hmm. So this notion, and the reason I'm talking about ontologies is because that's something that could be, uh, I think, could be very powerful if it was being kind of crowdsourced. Mm-hmm. But it takes a lot of work to do these things. And so people are not motivated or incentivized to create these ontologies unless maybe they can get compensated. So what if there was a way that, you know, we could say, hey, I need an ontology for orthopedic-related mm-hmm. topics. And, um, you know, somebody out in the world says they'll do it, and then I can – give them a commission essentially every time that that ontology is used. And we're using a blockchain kind of setup to, to create those contracts and make sure that whoever the creator of that ontology was, is being compensated for that work. So there's a lot of like interesting ways that we can use blockchain to solve these bigger problems and make again, technology more accessible to, to people because it can tap into the knowledge of millions of people, not just the 20 or 30 people that I can afford to hire at my company. Man, that, that is so much to think about. That is a ton. So when you, when you think about everything you're talking about and the world that you live in, I say outside of home, <laughs> you have two kids. Three. You have three kids. Well, my my oldest is now an adult, so okay. I don't know if she counts as a kid anymore. But yes, okay, I, I, so I have three offspring that I have okay. given birth to. Let's talk. Okay, let's <laughs> talk about one the, is off the payroll. Let, let's talk about the last. Oh, two. she's still she's on the payroll, definitely. Oh. She's going this to college. Is, so this is where I'm going <laughs> right now. She's taking a bigger piece of the payroll. Yeah, so yeah. then have she you, gets more expensive. <laughs> do you feel as if all of this knowledge and intellect that lives inside of you? either by osmosis, force, proximity, <laughs> whatever it might be, has it found its way to your offspring? And is that even a goal of yours? Oh, they are my apprentices, 100%. Okay, great. Yes. I mean, think about all the times they're in the car and I'm on a conference call. They're having to listen to these conversations with my technical team, with my investors, with my board. I mean – They've they've listened in on every business conversation I pretty much have at some point. Um, you know, during Zoom, during um, COVID, and everybody was locked down, and we were all at home. Yeah, know, there was no way that your kids couldn't hear your meetings or come in and sit there through half of my meetings, just so that you know they could be. I could be supervising and making sure they were doing their homework while I was on my calls. <laughs> what what are the ages? Um, so eleven, fifteen, and eighteen. Okay, mm-hmm. boys, girls. Uh, two my two girls bookended in the middle is a guy is a boy, mm-hmm. a young man. So, okay, so they're they're absorbing <laughs> yes. all. Yeah, of this. and You're and then I okay. I give them uh, they help me with a lot of things. So whenever I go back when we were doing a lot of public speaking, and I would prepare for like a keynote presentation, or if I was preparing my pitch for an investor presentation, I would practice with them. They were my audience. So I would make them sit down and give me notes. What part was boring? What part was interesting? What should I change? What terminology made sense to you? What was confusing? And they were, they're harsh critics, these kids, I got to tell you, my kids are the harshest of critics. And um, they would, they would literally give me feedback and help me with my preparation on many, many presentations. I mean, they can probably recite my pitch if you made them. Um, they, uh, they, I also sometimes involve them in just administrative tasks in the company. Mm-hmm. So when I was first setting up my 401k plan for one of my, uh, other businesses, you know, my daughter was watching me, uh, upload like this 401k contribution matching spreadsheet. And she was really curious, what is that? What's a 401k? Why is this important? And then she asked me like, Hey, can I learn how to do that? It looks really interesting. I'm, I would like to understand more about that. She was like 13. And how many 13-year-olds understand Man, that's so impressive. <laughs> what a 401k plan is that, and how it is, works? That is beyond <laughs> impressive. I mean, that, that, that is going to be transformative <laughs> because what that allows, you know, what 13-year-old gets a lesson on 401ks, let alone anything around finances and mm-hmm. investing or, or how, you know, people accumulate wealth, quite frankly, yeah. right? And so 
those are lessons that your kids will take with them and they will create massive, massive, massive change for them in their lives in terms of what they will, they will know yeah. when they move into <laughs> adulthood and the things that they're going to do with their lives and their careers. That's, yeah, that's, that's such a... <laughs> and see, this is the part of, um, we talk about families of mm-hmm. color, right? And this is the part that happens when you have built a successful career and then at home that becomes natural. Yes. As opposed to when we hit these fences and these ceilings and these walls, these conversations aren't happening at home. And that's the part of that I think folks can easily take for granted. Yes. When you've grown up in a family, predominantly white at times, right, where your dad's been a vice president, he's an executive, he's a founder of. But now you're saying this is important, too, to happen at home. And we talk about there are certain things we can't expect to happen in a school system. Yep. And none of those conversations yeah. are going to happen K through 12, no. right? Maybe in college. Mm-hmm. You are impressing upon them, whether it's natural or not, the importance of understanding this. And I, I think that's so beautiful to hear that at home and that they're genuinely interested in it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they really are. And it's maybe because... I just think that's the world they're in. You know, they're immersed in it. You know, I always had a huge amount of guilt, especially going to school in Provo in a place that was so um, gendered in the sense that, you know, women are supposed to be moms and a good mother stays home with her children and doesn't focus on her career. When I moved to Arizona, it was because I got a job at Intel. It was an amazing job. It was, you know, it set me up for my life. But I also wanted to have a family, and I remember thinking that I was going to have to give up my career if I wanted to be a good mother. There was no way I could do Mm. both. I couldn't work at a Fortune 500 company and have a successful career and also be a good mother and live up to this ideal that I had been – you know, raised with. My mother stayed home. And so I was like, wow, I'm going to really disappoint a lot of people because I want to have a career, but I also want to have kids. And it was hard for me to find a lot of support in that uh, and a lot of role models in that. But inside I knew, I was like, I think it's actually better for my kids if I work. Because for, for a couple of reasons, number one, I'm happier. And if they have a happier mother, they'll be happy. Mm-hmm. You know, everything's better. Everyone knows that, right? <laughs> yes. I need mental st- stimulation. And if I'm at home, not working on a project, not doing something interesting, not building a, a business, like my brain just atrophies. Like I have to have that. And second, that is kind of to your point, I think mothers have a very special way of including their children that maybe not to, not that fathers don't, but I think for us, it's more natural. Like, I just bring my scoop, my kids along. We strap, you know, I always say that my, my ancestors strapped their babies to their backs and just continued doing what they did. And I've kind of done that figuratively. Mm-hmm. You know, I've strapped my children to me along the way. I don't separate my business life from my <clears throat> maternal role. It's it. very much integrated it. into that function. And so if I want to spend more time with my kids, but I also have to prepare my speech for tomorrow, guess what? My kids are going to be part of my speech preparation. Right. That's how I'm blending both worlds. I don't try to separate them. I try to just include them more. My kids have been with me on business trips. They've traveled with me and um, seen me present in public. And so I think that has opened up their world in terms of what does the business world look like? What does a corporate event look like? What does a trade show look like? What does a what happens at these board meetings? Like we talk about those things uh, at the dinner table so that they understand them. And so that's, that's kind of what I've done. They can mm-hmm. see themselves. They can see a future in themselves in you. I think that's they, a beautiful thing. And I think mm-hmm. the narrative that, you know, women have to make a choice yeah. around being mothers versus being, uh, you know, career in a career. I think that's, that's such a false narrative. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't is. have to be that. And I, and I've seen, now, I've mm-hmm. seen so many very talented, super, super bright and, you know, <laughs> capable of anything. Lots of women who've made that difficult choice. And I'm not saying that's a bad choice because I think it's a it's a yeah. noble choice when <laughs> women decide that they want to be, you know, the primary caregiver at home for their children and, uh, you know, make that tremendous sacrifice because I believe it is a sacrifice is. a it lot is. of times. Mm-hmm. But I think for the for those who've made the ultimate sacrifice and choice to say, you know what? 
I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to, I'm going to do both hats off because I think that's, we, we need that because we need our children to be able to see, you know, two people, whether it's one or two together or not together, whatever that, that environment may be, but to have two parents who they can look to, you know, or at least one, mm-hmm. sometimes it is just one. Sometimes it's just the mother in that case, who's the one who's providing the example of what's possible in life if you strap on, work hard, yeah. and just get it done. Well, and it requires a lot of trust. On you <laughs> having to trust yourself and the system that you created that this is going to be great for my kids. Mm-hmm. Right? It's easy to say that. Oh, yeah. And but I had that, a lot of doubt. <laughs> exactly. Right? But you're trusting, okay, now I'm seeing what I'm saying is coming mm-hmm. true, which is awesome. We only have a few minutes left. This has flown by. We could probably talk to you for a day. No question. <laughs> no question. This is, You've this is accomplished awesome. so much. And I'm sure your kids have this vision of their mom that's incredible now. But if you were to go into the Hall of Fame, what would it be for right now in your life? The Hall of Fame. Wow. That's. Well, I kind of was in a little mini Hall of Fame already. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We're all ears. No. uh, You know, last year it was interesting that one of the business publications here actually uh, recognized me as being one of the most influential women in business in Arizona. I saw that, but I wasn't going to say anything. And, you know, not that, I mean, that's just like a little mini microcosm, right? The Phoenix metro area is not the world, right? But, you know, I think what I do well, the thing that I do well is I include people. And I think about community and I think about the village that needs to be created for something to be accomplished. That's kind of how I always approach things. Mm -hmm. The reason I've been able to have a career and be a mom is because I brought a village along with me. I didn't do it by myself. Mm -hmm. I recruited a lot of people to help me. But I also made it something advantageous to them to be part of the village. Like it's like if you get to if you come into my village and help me out, like I'm also going to help you out. I'm going to help you build your dreams too. Like let's do this together. It's not about me. It's about us. And that's the thing that I know how to do so well. And I have always been a village builder in every endeavor that I have gone through, whether I was at Intel trying to drive an initiative, you know, I would figure out who do I need to bring in? Who do I need to get support from? Who do I need to help so that they'll help me? And then I would make these huge monumental projects come to fruition because I knew how to tap into the collective, not just my own abilities. And I think that would be the thing that would I could go up on a Hall of Fame for. That's an amazing thing to go in for. I love that. Yeah. Love well, we have to close soon. Is there anything <laughs> you would like to ask us or is there anything we may have missed about you? You know, I would love to see – I feel like um, – the like the, the the black culture in Phoenix, the black culture, the black community in Phoenix. Um, I would like to tap into it more, mm-hmm. in the sense that I would like to involve my. I have you know a couple of entrepreneurial friends that are also um, that are black, and I would love to um, make our group bigger. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm part of a couple of uh, groups that are out like in D.C. and in other metro areas that have larger communities of color it seems like but here we're kind of all like everyone's just kind of like hidden in little corners and i would love to bring everybody together more get to know more people um i'm constantly being asked by investors hey i'm looking for more diverse founders like you can you introduce us and i want to be able to introduce more people from phoenix in that uh you know, right now I'm like, oh, yeah, I know this girl in L.A. and I know this really yeah. cool founder in Chicago and I know this really cool founder in <clears throat> D.C. you should talk to. But I want to be able to say, I know this really awesome founder in Phoenix that you should talk to. And so I would like to bring that community together and somehow because, again, I, I don't believe we can do this as islands. We have to do this together. Well, I think we should talk more about that offline and be we really should. deliberate about it because mm-hmm. the thing I found in you know, Charles, your your take on this will be really interesting. You're going to have to be deliberate doing that here. Because I just had a, a lengthy conversation yesterday with a diversity expert. And she's in Gilbert. She's born in Africa. Her experience about being black here 
as a diversity <laughs> in Gilbert. So, in Gilbert, right? It's <laughs> yeah. so different than if she was doing that in Phoenix. Yes. Or someone mm-hmm. doing that in North Scottsdale. But to your point, how do we harness all of this intellect, mm-hmm. understand it, um, and then create a platform for it? I think it has to be so it will not happen naturally. Mm-hmm. And I think in other cities, there tend to be connection points where it's more natural. I may have never met Charles had we not had a mutual friend that I knew about before we got here. Mm-hmm. It's just there aren't those connection points for black folks. So I found, especially at the executive level, that are really just natural connection points. Yeah. Having lived in New York and Chicago, it felt a lot more natural, quite honestly. Yeah. So and, I, I and, don't know what your experience has been there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like this, this is like, for me, uh, it's a pretty embarrassing topic quite frankly, because um, we just don't make the effort enough, I think. I think what happens early on, I'll, I'll just share my experience, yeah. was when I first got involved in um, just the community, just trying to be, you know, first of all, you're, you're a young entrepreneur, trying to build yeah. a business, trying to make connections, develop relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens is you coalesce in that time frame and you start trying to you know build and meet and connect and spend time you know get involved with the minority business organizations here in town and and then what happens is you start to just see the sort of like the different levels of where people are in that mm-hmm. cycle and like where they are in terms of building their business in terms of you know how serious are they or you know how how are, are they really sort of moving in this direction and yeah. also are there resources or are there opportunities for help? And then yeah. at some point you start to just pull away because you feel like, you know what? I've just got to chart my own path. I've got to figure this out on my own. And I've just got to start to build, you know, and, and, and you know, you start looking at it from a standpoint of how do I grow my business? What is the best way, the best path? Who do I need to be connected with to make that happen? And then you start to realize the source of power doesn't exist there. Mm-hmm. And the source of power is somewhere else. And so you start moving towards where that source of power is and develop, if you're fortunate, getting connected with those relationships, with those opportunities, and then you start to build and grow from there. And if you're not conscious about it, you're not turning back around and saying, okay, I need to go back over to this spot where we started (laughs) and try to get more people and bring them back over to this place over here where like, you know, things are prosperous and growing and there's lots of opportunity because they're, you're developing relationships and you're making connections. And that to me, like if I'm, I'm reflecting for myself, that's like the embarrassing part. Like you maybe do that from time to time with an individual here or there, but there's no concerted effort to go back as a, as a group of people and say, okay, here's how, here's how I did this and here's what would be helpful to sort of like bring everyone else along. And so I think that's, if, if that's something that is possible to do then then it to DJ's point it has to be very deliberate. There's a lot it, it's of possible around that, and it, it, it is possible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about possible. people making the concerted effort and being yeah. super conscious about it. And and I think the fact that you are aware of its importance is also very inspiring. Absolutely, uh, because you know you talk about the the village concept. That's what also I found is is it sometimes lost out here mm-hmm. as it relates to. The black community. And again, it's my observation. I'm not saying it's a fact for everyone, but it's a lot tougher to wrangle and mm-hmm. to harness, but it, it can be done. I'm seeing the more time I spend here, still less than two years. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, after some experiences, COVID being one, people are realizing it's, it's important. It's mm-hmm. important to harness it. So we should really spend some time offline, maybe do a dinner and, and talk about what that means because um, I'm all in. I think it's necessary. I think it's necessary. Mm-hmm. So I'm really I'm really glad you, you brought that up and it's a great place for us to end. Is there anything else we may have missed? Again, we'll we'll keep you as long as we that may have been the best question we've had. Yeah. No, I, I, I think so. Just yeah, I think so. What are some concrete things we could and should be doing? Well, you know, the exciting thing, I'll just kind of cap that off here, is Arizona is starting to get on the map when it comes to the startup and technology Mm -hmm. um, 
world. I mean, we're not a Silicon Valley yet, but we're definitely an up and coming city. Absolutely. You know, there's some eyes on what's happening here. And so I think we have a unique opportunity. Like this is, there's going to be, there's, uh, you know, I've gotten wind of some big funds that are coming in to the the Valley of the Sun. Investors have moved here. Mm -hmm. Some really good startups are happening here right now. Some, you know, for the first time I'm hearing Phoenix come up, you know, you're seeing Phoenix startups show up in TechCrunch. So we have a really unique opportunity right now. And so let's have the founders that we bring forward be diverse founders. Let's show that, you know, and Arizona actually has a, you know, a a strong Latin community. It has a very strong, um, a lot of cultures here that we should really kind of highlight. So let's, let's make this a, a not Silicon Valley uh, community of lots of chads. (laughs) Chads and Brads. Yeah, Not that there's exactly anything wrong right. with the Chads and Brads, but let's we can do better. Well, <laughs> and the truth is, it's not just for the sake of diversity. I mean, we all know it's because companies that have diverse founders and C-suites and board members outperform. We, you know, because that diversity Absolutely. of thought is what actually creates better outcomes for everybody. So Almost. that's really what it's about. Absolutely. We thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to that meeting. All right. Happy to be here. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on The Conscious Vibe. Thank you for joining us. And check us out on tcvpodcast.com.